welcome to another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, we mix it up a little bit for Season 3, and I have a conversation with Professor Kenneth Meyer on his new paper in Social Science Quarterly titled, Looking for Meaning in All the Wrong Places, Country Music and the Politics of Identity. Ken is a distinguished scholar in residence at the School of Public Affairs at American University. He is also an editor of the Journal of Behavioral Public Administration and the director of the Public Management Research Association journals, which include the Journal of Public Administration Research and Theory and Perspectives on Public Management and Governance. It was quite a pleasure talking with Ken, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. But I like to start when I have someone on, Ken, and just give them an opportunity to situate themselves intellectually. So if a listener isn't aware of your research or isn't aware of what you do, before we get into the paper that I'd like to talk about today, um, I was just curious how you think of yourself as a, as a researcher. Okay. Uh, thanks, Justin. I actually think of myself as uh, essentially a political economist in the tradition of John Stuart Mill. That is, I like to look at a wide range of policy questions. I don't distinguish between normative and empirical issues. I think they blend. I think that distinction is very artificial. And as a result, I look for policy areas that put a great deal of stress on governance, government, uh, and on public administration, which is, I consider, the most essential instrument uh, in uh, the governance process. Mm -hmm. I take the unusual position on the bureaucracy versus democracy question, for example, that democracy is simply not possible without an effective bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And that makes me a little bit unusual on that. But then uh, I do a variety of things that are sort of unusual. Uh, this project really, uh, which involves uh, the politics of identity and uh, how country music uh, expresses that, I think, very well, really has its roots when uh, in earlier work I've done looking at policies which I think essentially involve the political process defining policies in such a way that they're going to fail. Mm -hmm. And I would uh, take this back to a book I wrote uh, a couple decades ago called The Politics of Sin where I looked at questions of alcohol and drug abuse in the United States and argued that, indeed, the political branches defined this as sin. Mm -hmm. And this was really an example of the politics of identity, that it was an attempt by the political institutions or politicians to define who was deserving and who was not deserving. Mm -hmm. That it was a way to say that in uh, historical terms, those people who were Protestant and dry were the true Americans. Those that are Catholic and wet were just drunken sots that we should ignore in the United <laughs> States. Yeah. And that this leads to a demonization <coughs> of others uh, that results in a competition among politicians to be more and more extreme. Mm -hmm. Even though we know that indeed there are very few 
as I would term them in my formal theory, there are very few perverts out there <laughs> that are unamenable to, to, to certain types of things, but indeed it's the case. Yeah. And so that's the sort of background. Uh, coming back to this, this was a way to uh, engage my uh, interest in country music uh, and art mm -hmm. uh, and note that uh, this is if you're going to do music and the American identity, this is this is sort of a tough case because uh, country musicians aren't very political, mm -hmm. uh, or at least they're not ostensibly political. Uh, it would be very easy to do this with hip hop, for yeah. example, yeah, because yeah. hip hop is just in your face political. Mm -hmm. As I like to say, uh, you know, in the essay, it's uh, you wouldn't expect this to be sophisticated politics because, after all, you don't expect the second treatise in government to come out from somebody who married his 13-year-old cousin <laughs> and then wondered why the uh, records would no longer sell. So I see country music as defining or an attempt to define who's an American and therefore who is not an American. Yeah. And within that, see several sort of broad themes, some which uh, are reflected very much in contemporary politics. Uh, I think one could easily place Donald Trump into this uh, framework and show that the, the demonization of immigrants, uh, those individuals who aren't 100% patriotic Americans, uh, are simply just not Americans. Mm -hmm. And that it's about uh, those of us who think of ourselves as Americans defining those who are not. Yeah. So uh, before we get too far into the paper, I want to let everyone know where it is and what the title of it is. So it's a, it's just recently accepted at Social Science Quarterly and up online for early view. And the paper's titled, which I which I like, uh, some play off some lyrics itself, Looking for Meaning in All the Wrong Places, Country Music and the Politics of Identity. And so I think, uh, you know, you touched on several things there that I think are really interesting. Uh, that I, So I grew up a big country music fan in the 90s. And... You know, looking back, so you identify several, uh, uh, I guess, dimensions here from your contextual analysis. And I was, I think I was, was telling you before we started recording, I actually spent some time last night going through Rolling Stones Top 100 and Billboard Top 100, like greatest hits of country music, and thinking about some of my own memories of being pretty immersed in uh, American country music, uh, white American culture. Um, as part of my childhood. And so it was kind of fun to see some of these. I can remember, for example, you know, talking about patriotism, I can remember hearing Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA and it being almost like something that should replace the national anthem in the amount of like patriotism that it was supposed to inspire. And so what I thought was, so you have that on one end and then you have the kind of uh, Toby Keith, angry American, uh, you know, kick a put stick a boot in their ass kind of version of like patriotism, and you have the, another one that I grew up with was Charlie Daniels, Charlie Daniels Band, um, which you may remember as well, and his sort of odd versions of patriotism that floated between like sort of support for the South and clearly like racial overtones to like a, a, you know vehement nationalism and strong defense of the flag. 
And so it is kind of interesting to think about how the music from an art standpoint is, to your point, is really defining what it means to be an American for this culture of people and who who is uh, who is who is part of this culture and what those norms are supposed to be and then who's not. Um, and another piece that you that highlight that you highlight that in retrospect, you know, I didn't notice the the prevalence of it as as I was growing up in this culture, but it's also the religion piece. Um, which it's not, um, you know, a lot of country music stars also end up doing gospel records and some of those are their best, uh, records. I actually went to a Reba McIntyre. I took my wife to a Reba McIntyre concert a few months ago and fancy is on my list of ones that shows up in some of these dimensions. And I was kind of surprised at how much these things have been wed, even since I was younger at her concert, it was for, 10 minutes like being in a Protestant megachurch. Um, one of her songs was very much like praise and worship and people were, you know, engaging in kind of worship symbols. They're like closing their eyes and putting their hands up. And I was like completely taken aback by how much merging there has been across these cross-cutting identities. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it was, it's interesting to me to, to think about how, um, you know, I can really see some of these dimensions that you've identified. And to your point, they're not usually in your face. They're more kind of coded language in the way that mimics, you know, white American culture when we talk about race and religion and politics. I mean, I think it does a really good job of highlighting that. Right. I think that's, that's really true. As I like to say, uh, these people do believe that God wants you to sing through your nose. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what I find very interesting, we'll get back to Toby Keith, who I find fascinating in and of himself yeah. uh, on many dimensions. But um, on the religion side, uh, it really is. And you see sort of a play out, though, even sort of within the religious movement uh, in there. That is, you get these sort of Chris Christopherson types who really want to go back and let's talk about uh, Jesus of Nazareth and what he meant, not these mega churches, uh, you know, or they want you to send your money to the Lord, but they give you his address, right? And so this really is some, a bit of a countercurrent, but it's really a very small countercurrent in there. And I think you're right. A country concert and, say, a Joel Osteen service is probably pretty much the same if you sort of reduce them down to the sort of pacing and the sort of uh, types of, of things that uh, could, could be, you know, done in parallel. In fact, it would be really interesting if Willie would sing with Joel Olsen. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Talk about different branches of country music and political identities and approaches to religion. Woo-wee. That is a, that's a fascinating one. You know, the, the yeah, other... But, as you know, Willie will sing with anyone. <laughs> uh, so uh, even, even, even his, uh, you know, sort of vigilante theme with uh, Toby Keith, Beer for My Horses, uh, which really does uh, sort of suggest that, well, this isn't about law and order, this is about vengeance, which is not a particularly willy type of uh, I I attribute that to, uh, and if we can talk a little bit about Toby Keith, I think Toby Keith really does uh, epitomize a lot of this because Toby Keith is to phrase 
paraphrase Chris Christopherson, a bunch of walk, walking contradictions. <laughs> no, yeah. Right? And it's not as though he's normally, you know, a God love America person. Yep. Right? I yep. mean, you know, with his, uh, he does a lot of great drinking songs. Mm-hmm. A little bit more in the outlaw style in some ways. Yeah, yeah he really, really is. And his, his angry American really comes from, he, he is very much a supporter of the military. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there he, he at some time would probably actually agree with, you know, mistreatment of veterans, mm-hmm. for example as opposed to just the uh, saluting the flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that represents a lot of country music is that people don't integrate this and say what it all means in one swoop. Yeah. It's a series of discrete sort of you're in, I'm out, you're in, but I'm trying to stay in most of the time. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you get sometimes the sort of conflict like uh, we supported you in this war, you should maybe support us now that we're back from the war. Yeah. 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 And some of that kind of uh, rebelliousness he he captures while also being like incredibly, you know, uh, uh, just pandering to, to nationalism. I mean, his is, is sometimes over and above just patriotism, right? Um, and so it is, it is interesting how a lot of them are are walking contradictions, I think, in that way. The, the other piece of this that I think ties interesting now to the current political sphere, and so, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that country music is mostly captured in large part by the uh, politics of the Republican Party, and you see this when people like Eric Church recently spoke out against the NRA, or like when the Dixie Chicks uh, criticized uh, Bush. I mean, this is a, a pretty harmonious uh, group with with respect to politics uh, in general, I think. And the other current of that, that I can see as a predecessor to some of Trump's Make America Great Again uh, sentiment is this nostalgia. You know, the one that I was going back trying to find examples of that were, as I was, I picked out the six categories. I'm going to find a couple examples of these before we talk. The one to find the easiest, I think, um, was nostalgia. I mean, there's just all kinds and particularly, I mean, in history, but some of the ones I grew up with, you know, Toby Keith's As Good As I Once Was is straight up nostalgia. Um, Eric Church's Springsteen um, is just straight up nostalgia. Um, Mountain music coming from Alabama, talking about old times in the mountains. And and Gary Allen has one from 08 called In Color. It's kind of like flashbacks and how things uh, you only see them in black and white and how that was a different kind of time. And, you know, I see really strong echoes of that as uh, as a construct of thinking back more favorably on times gone by and shunning modernity in, in important ways in the current phenomenon that is that is Trump and Make America Great Again. Yeah, I think, the, you know, that fits the Make America Great theme so, so so well mm-hmm. the idea that there was this time in the past where things were just marvelous it's you know and as, as uh, merle haggard says are we rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell right <laughs> yeah. and, uh, back when you know uh women would still cook steel wood sort of thing yeah. uh, and so the nostalgia is for when you know men could be out you know doing whatever men do cheating and drinking, women stayed home and cooking, but life was wonderful then because everybody <laughs> knew their place, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, 
and it was a place that you know had a really nice hierarchy and you thought well this was this was a really good place to be i think dolly parton's right uh her song about the good old days not being all that good uh these people kind of forgot where they actually grew up well we also have Uh, a lot of data on that (laughs) (laughs) just things are in really important ways, objectively better <laughs> um, right. for lots of people. Now, in some subjective kind of psychological states, it's also probably true that things aren't as great as they've always been for the relative power distribution of, say, white male Americans. Um, and so maybe that's an, an interesting place to transition to this thought about race being one of the key dimensions of uh, American country music, which you identify. And <clears throat> this was one that, you know, you mentioned in the paper is really uh, coded in lots of ways and more a function of that all the actors, um, all the participants being predominantly white with some few exceptions. Um, and it's uh, it's interesting to me how much of it really is defining white America, white rural America, without explicitly doing so in a way that growing up for me, because it wasn't something that was talked about, I just assumed was American culture. Like that was just what everyone was, uh, was thinking about. And so in that way, it's interesting how it like defines to your point, the in group and out group based on these like coded uh, racial indicators of culture but doesn't really come out in like aggressive racial language usually. I mean, there is some countercurrents in there, people like Brad Paisley and a few others trying to be more open about maybe this is a conversation that country music needs to have and has uh, maybe not always been as, you know, open to conversations about race and how that interacts in these same actors' worlds that they're talking about. Right. I think, in fact, uh, if you look at this, the stuff that's been overtly racial has always sort of been outside the mainstream a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, doing this research uh, turned me off to Marty Robbins forever hmm. uh, because of his anti-immigrant sort of anti-freedom writer songs. But in those cases, it was always the uh, record companies that wouldn't release this stuff. Right. All this stuff was done, you know, David Allen Coe's underground album, for example. No, no, no record company would touch that (laughs) because they were sort of hewing this line and they didn't want to expose the scene side of America as it stood. And I think that's part of it by ignoring race. They don't have to they don't have to deal with it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and this is this is all very interesting because the music itself has has very much much in the black community and black history in terms of the music itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have always been some participants in this outside the mainstream that have, have sort of accepted this. But you're right, this is a conversation. They, I, it looks like they would just prefer not to have. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, outside of the few kind of songs like Reuben James or things of that nature. Um they sort of come, go, and then we're back to uh, white America again. This is, this is, this is our experiences. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's just part of the sort of compartmentalization you're seeing here, mm-hmm. right? That uh, we, uh, we uh, you 
like America, but we're going to overlook its faults. Yeah. We like religion, but we're going to look overlook those faults too. Uh, we, we like the institution of marriage, but we're going to really overlook those faults, but except for Melissa Lambright and a few other people who are unwilling to do so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's focus on maybe a positive aspect of the culture, <clears throat> or maybe one that I think can be argued to be a positive aspect, which is this idea of the goodness of the common common man. Now, this one really, again, growing up in rural America and Appalachia, I mean, this one really resonates with me. Um, and the ones that I identified as, as kind of symbolizing this for me from the 90s um, was Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks, talking about, you know, the, the people that he did associate with were these common people. They weren't the professionals. They were the working class, the common folks. And then uh, the, the other one, which... Uh, I thought it was great that it was laying out some common man stuff, but also defining, you know, who's in and who's not is this uh, pickup man by Joe Diffie. I don't know if you remember this one, but it's sort of, you know, uh, in part identifying the common man as someone who drives a pickup truck, not anything else. Um, but I think um, there is a there are themes, um, at least as part of if you're part of the in group that really do emphasize some things that are um, have more, I guess, pro-social benefits to them. And so thinking about like any typical kind of person out in society, it doesn't matter if they're educated. It doesn't matter if they make a lot of money. They have some type of intrinsic worth um, is, a, is definitely a, a theme of this. Now, it's gets played out in some of these traditional family values that we maybe we should talk about while we're here too. Um, but it really does kind of paint the, the lower class, the working class, the middle class as the protagonist, as the, as the, as the hero. I mean, uh, I think you found some good examples of that as well in the, in the paper, but that's one I think that persists also. Uh, I think you're right about that. And this has always been, I think, if, if we can turn this to a political uh, aspect, this has always been one aspect of the populist dream that you could unite the lower class whites with the other lower class group, mm -hmm. uh, African-Americans, and you'd have a coalition. Uh, of course, most of Southern politics has been devoted to sort of preventing that from happening, to yeah. keep race in the forefront so that you can't do that thing. But indeed, there's there's a commonality there. And you, you see that come out. Uh, you see that come out in very unusual places. I, for example, never uh, expected Big and Rich to come out with their song about they're shutting Detroit down. It's just not the sort of thing I associated yeah. with the people who wrote Save a Horse, Ride a Cow. <laughs> yeah. um, but indeed, uh, this has a uh, – you, you see the positive good of the working man, but you also see them you know, uh, pushed up against the wall. Uh, and that this is something that occurs not just because of politics – though that's part of it, but also because of uh, the social class structure uh, of individuals uh, that, um, you know, are exploiting this, this working class uh, as they see those sort of distinctions. Uh, you know, it, the interesting thing is how one does that and keeps it from being radicalized. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because indeed, from many of these individuals, as you alluded to earlier, um, things have changed for these individuals. It's, it's no longer possible to get a high school degree and become middle class, mm -hmm. right? Uh, union jobs are gone. Uh, being able to, to do the sort of things you used to be able to do and then maybe send your children to college, that's extremely difficult. Individuals see that, and that becomes part of the hopelessness of, of this. Um, and as a result, this theme often, I think, very much gets overwritten, as you see in politics now. It gets overwritten by anti-immigration. It gets overwritten by uh, patriotism. It gets overwritten by religion. Uh, you know, you should, you're the common man. You're virtuous as it is. You should uh, get beyond your petty grievances mm -hmm. and, 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 and identify with the rest of America. Um, you know, the, how long, you know, politically, we've always been interested in how long that works. <laughs> yeah. How long you can sort of keep people from focusing on the idea that, well, it really is problematic now, mm -hmm. right? We really are at a disadvantage uh, that the American dream just isn't there anymore. And you see some, you see some responses now. It's not out of really Nashville country, um, but out of Texas country, you see some themes pushing back uh, with responses to how people in those communities are being affected by the changing economic and political climate. I mean, the one that I really like um, falls a little bit more folk Americana, but still fit, in my opinion, in the country label, is Ryan Bingham. He was he took part in all these Occupy Wall Street protests and has that real kind of gravelly, acoustic, outlaw um, sound to him. And a lot of his is just, is just, you know, and in all kinds of ways that you can do it, yelling, sad stories, just poetry, laying out all these arguments for how, you know, we're screwing the low working class in particular in these rural areas um, where new job opportunities aren't cropping up in the new economy. And so I think it's one thing that'll be interesting to see um, at, with the rise of kind of Trumpism, but also with the rise of, you know, these, a lot of people in these communities genuinely hurting what this does to the art form of country music. You know, we were talking about um, the anti-immigration themes. And one thing that that made me think about is um, the <clears throat> uh, the Trump administration separating children at the border. And one thing that I was thinking about, as you said that, is it seems like even within this, you know, within this culture, there are lines about the types of anti-immigration blatant things that they're that they're willing to endorse as well. Because if you think about that anyway, about that, there were no that I recall you know, country music artists out there saying, this is a great thing. Let's do more of this. Like the actual kind of physical separating children, actual trauma to them, even though all there, there's this kind of anti-immigration rhetoric and clearly defined things around white identity. When it comes to that, that's like there were some clear lines against what the culture was willing to, to endorse. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how the, the rise of populism and the tribal politics in the U.S., what type of impact it has, like which direction does country music go in, right? Does it turn like fascist 
I mean, is that the direction it goes or does it turn more outlaw and anti-government? You know, and it's hard to, and my guess is there's some types of splits, but it's, I think it's interesting to think about how those forces might influence the art. Uh, you know, I think there's no question about that, that you, you see it gets reflected in the art as these events occur. And, and you would expect that, um, you know, and, 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 and indeed, the, the essay probably paints country music as more uniform than it is, as mm-hmm. you know. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different approaches to country music, all sorts of different ways to sort of uh, do these things. And, and as you know, there are offshoots now that are sort of bringing these types of issues forward, uh, usually under the guise of the common man. Uh, you know, and at some point, uh, you'll probably see additional stuff come out about, uh, you know, there'll be more, uh, songs like who's going to build your wall mm-hmm. yeah. to talk about, you know, in fact, uh, these are really, you know, as, as I like to say, if you, if you're looking for the true Americans in the, in the United States, what you should look at are the immigrants mm-hmm. because, yeah. Uh, they overcome incredible hardships to get here. They're ineligible for welfare. They educate their children. They obey the law, and they're incredibly patriotic. They're far better than the Americans we have, right? So in one sense, Trump is right. This birthright citizenship is a terrible thing, right? We should decide whether or not people who are just born here can meet the qualifications of people who move here, and if they can't, we can send them back, right? but indeed, in terms of living American values, those are the people who are truly living American values. Well, I don't think it can be the, the stated enough or even the empirical evidence highlighted on that enough, given, you know, I uh, we do a, a Bush School podcast now, and I was talking with Greg Gauls in the uh, aftermath of the midterms. And, you know, the thing that this is the issue that uh, which I mean, I, I married a Mexican immigrant, so it's personal in lots of ways as well. But the rhetoric leading up to the midterms on this particular issue of denigration of immigrants and treating political asylum seekers like criminals was something just uh, really, um, really dark, <laughs> really dark and really unsettling that it played. You know, it wasn't uniformly well received, right? There wasn't a, a red wave, but there certainly wasn't a huge blue wave that thought those tactics were uh, unacceptable. And um, I think that's really, uh, really worrying. Um, Right. The the only optimistic thing about that is we've had these periods in the past. They've crested, they've died off, and we've gotten back to the end. So you hope for normalcy to sort of reassert itself Mm -hmm. in in this process. Um, You know, um, and it's rare to see it in a situation like now where we've essentially got a pretty decent economy. It's growing. There's prosperity in generally, unemployment's low, uh, so it's an unusual time for these things to pop up. Uh, but you're right, um, you know, it, you don't have to go very far to see the rhetoric get exceptionally ugly. Uh, and um, indeed, uh, because of the what we like to call the social sciences, the selection bias of who attends rallies, you see that feed upon itself. Right, yeah. uh, where uh, they will just say something more and more extreme just to sort of stand out in the process, not, not understanding that um, after the election, then there, you know, what my favorite thing is after you've done all of this demonization, 
then you say after the election, well, now it's time for bipartisanship and work together. Right. Uh, and I can understand that there are going to be a lot of people really skeptical about that. Uh, yeah. That indeed, you just told me I'm not even an American. And now I'm supposed to forget about what I hold dear and, and work for you to sort of impose your will on me. Yeah, the whole phenomenon is just so easy to get sidetracked and just have a whole conversation about the the ridiculousness of the way some of this has played out. Um, I want to highlight uh, your conclusion uh, in the paper, because I think to some people, um, even following our conversation, given what they know about the political um, parties in the U.S., might find your conclusion, um, uh, I, I guess, confusing, because we're talking about a group of people that usually associate with the Republican Party, which is traditionally associated with small government and free market capitalism and low taxes. and so. In your conclusion, you say uh, U.S. country music can be viewed as the symbolic politics version of redistributive politics that defines values to be accepted and cherished as well as values to be denigrated and shunned. And I notice what's in there is this word uh, redistributive, um, which I would imagine that a lot of country music fans would, uh, you know, their face would go sour when you talk about redistribution and redistributive politics. Um, but I also think I understand where you're going with this. So. How is it from what you found here, even if some of the folks that maybe subscribe to the country music culture are, you know, associated with a party that's kind of free market and anti-redistribution, where do you get the redistribution language to bring this home? Ah, yes, that's because uh, it was the real definition of redistribution (laughs) rather than theirs. Uh, Redistribution is not just about taking money from one group and giving it to another. Uh, redistribution is about taking things from a group and giving it to another. And in fact, most of our economic redistribution in recent times has been the exact opposite of redistribution. We've taken it from working class and poor and given it to the corporate elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as Big uh, and Rich say, we're shutting Detroit down while you guys are jetting off to Hawaii on these. Uh, on, on the subsidies you got in the process. That's redistribution too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's moving the distribution of things. Now, the point about the whole essay is there's lots of things you can distribute. Income is one of them. Mm-hmm. Values are another. And in fact, values, I think, are just much more fundamental. It's distributing who's worthy and who's not worthy. And that's what this sort of uh, politics is about, that I'm the true American, you are not. Uh, as William Jennings Bryan said during his campaign, uh, we are at Armageddon battling on the side of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So imagine which side you're on. <laughs> uh, if you're not on William Jennings Bryan's side, indeed, uh, it's taking it one step beyond. The fact that it can sometimes be married with the idea of a maldistribution of income in favor of the wealthy uh, shows just the power of the argument that indeed redistribution ought to be about income. But if we, as we like to say in political science, if we change the dimensions of the conflict in a multidimensional space, then indeed uh, if redistribution is about values, you will look at the fact that I'm making an incredible amount of money, 
we've just suckered you on one of the great tax cuts of all times, which your children will pay for forever. Mm -hmm. But thank you for doing this because you're a true American. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, uh, I spent a lot of leading up to the election kind of railing against Trump to this community in large part because, you know, here was someone that was claiming to devote resources, that was going to devote resources to them, but all the time, kind of all the signs were that it was just going to be tax cuts to the wealthy and, uh, you know, pro business elite policies. Um, and indeed, you know, that's kind of what we've gotten. Now there's been some focusing on some of the issues to these communities, like, uh, the opioid addiction, which is one that, um, has gotten some attention. So it wasn't not on all dimensions, but, uh, on a lot of them, it just, uh, didn't, there wasn't any, any even real push. It was trying to convince those people that he was one of them that fit the, the, the narrative of who was a real American versus who, who wasn't. Yes. Um, you know, from a public administration perspective, the opiate uh, crisis is uh, an interesting phenomenon because, of course, the roots of that crisis is uh, a lack of regulation. As you allow people to distribute massive amounts of drugs to various places far beyond anything normal, uh, no checks in the system, uh, and indeed uh, sort of replicating every other drug crisis we've had. Uh, we know that the demand for drugs is somewhat inelastic. If you supply them, people will use them because for some people their life looks better on drugs than when it's not on drugs. Mm -hmm. And indeed, um, this is a case of, as I would like to say in the politics of sin, not thinking the process through of all the methods of intoxication. I think opiates are probably one of the worst. And therefore, if you were thinking this through, you would probably think, okay, these are the sort of things I should tightly regulate. If people are going to do this, let's try to funnel them someplace less dangerous. Yeah. That would make too much sense, though. That would be a nice, well, it, rational it, it, analysis of regulation. <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. And as I point out to the students, you know, you don't get the rational outcome because there are so many stakeholders with so much at stake in getting the things to work in their favor um, that sometimes the rational uh, approach for the better part of society just doesn't win out. Yes. So is there uh, – we're getting, I think, about the 40-minute mark, and uh, and being respectful of your time, I want to start winding down. But is there anything uh, about the paper and kind of the identity politics of country music – or these dimensions that you know we just missed, or you think would be um, kind of interesting to leave the audience with uh, that we haven't touched on yet. <clears throat> oh, I, I think one of the things I'd like to touch on is the feminist strain mm. in this mm -hmm. American identity because it, it worked as a countercurrent, and and of course, uh, you know, uh, Goodbye Earl and Madigan Tay and the contemporary stuff. But what I found very interesting was there were roots of this way back in country music. Oh, really? The Carter family. Really? I have a marvelous song about comparing a married woman to a single woman, and a single woman having all these nice clothes and having fun, and a married woman leading a life of complete total drudgery. Yeah. Uh, and this comes from the Carter family. I mean, that's as just, that's just traditional a country as you can get. Yeah. Uh, and then you saw that stream come through with uh, really, again, Loretta Lynn. 
mm-hmm. and her song The Pill, Rufus City, and you know, really independent women, and even, I think, women who took advantage of the others. Uh, one of the people who I think has parlayed this marvelously well uh, of being both a feminist and a non-feminist simultaneously is Dolly Parton. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because she has this image, this fluff image. This is one of the smartest business women in the oh, world, yeah. oh, right? And indeed has parlayed this into an incredible career, independent, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you forget, she's the one who kicked Porter Wagner out of this duet. Yeah. And, and that was very controversial at the time. So there's always been this really, I think, very interesting stream of feminism country music. Uh, as sort of a, a, a reaction to this. Uh, and even so much that uh, you just saw it pop up in the news lately uh, with uh, Miranda Lambright and Jason Aldean. As she said, well, obviously, to get a number one record, I have to sing with somebody with a penis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, this makes it, you know, a very interesting in terms of the, the, the sexual politics of the industry because uh, Lambright has sold an incredible number of albums mm-hmm. uh, and you know these things go platinum automatically but but can't buy a top 10 hit yeah. uh, which needs radio play and, and you know she clearly has a grievance this woman can sing uh, she's got a message um, you know some of those songs are I think just uh, incredible uh, in the process, but I, I, I find that street very interesting, very encouraging as independent women are sort of pushing the edge, how far they can go mm-hmm. and still stay within this genre or still maybe develop their own set of fans that are, you know, somewhat different from, from, from the mainstream. Yeah. My, uh, my first exposure to it, I think was, uh, Shania Twain. Uh, here's one who probably has a mix of feminism and non-feminism but you know she had a song uh, i think it was in the early 2000 uh that don't impress me much where she's just yeah. like nope yeah. i'm in charge and uh, you deal with it yeah um uh while also still being very sexualized <laughs> um at the right. same time um but yeah feel like a woman yeah exactly oh yeah i mean if like a woman yeah and so yeah it is interesting that they to see the the women kind of having strong, uh, um, kind of strong strands of this. And Miranda Lambert, I think, is a nice example. I had seen interviews with her where she's sort of just open about it. Like, this is just completely not fair um, that the men are treated differently than the women. Um, and you do see it play out in the in the songs. And I didn't realize it went back so far. Um, so it's interesting that it's been kind of this, this uh, voice within it, even if it's a quieter voice or a, Less paid attention to voice. Yeah, and it's always you know, it's, it's it's there's always been there in the on the business side too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Bonnie Owen managing both Merle Haggard, Buck Owens' career, and and, mm-hmm. and really, uh, it looks like the driving uh, monetary force behind the Carter family was Maybell Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite frankly, if uh, June Carter Cash hadn't sobered up Johnny, uh, he probably wouldn't have been the star he was. No, that's true. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad that uh, we're able to find some time to talk about this. And it's interesting to me because I, I grew up with so much of these symbols and uh, it's kind of fun to reflect on uh, the ways in which they were playing out when I was growing up and how it affects my own identity because it was such a large part of my own adolescence. 
And so I really, uh, I really enjoyed when you asked me to read it. Uh, it was fun kind of looking through it and going back through it, uh, going through today, looking at some of the old lyrics and thinking about how it fit with some of my uh, intuitions about country music was a lot of fun. So uh, thanks so much. Oh, well, thank you for uh, for doing this. I, I think people will enjoy reading it, and, and you know they can send me the lyrics that they think I left out. Great. And when you write another one on country music, we'll have to do a follow up. <laughs> All right, we can do that. Thanks, Ken. Uh, thanks, Justin.